Hey guys, and welcome back to Transformation Church. If it's your first time, a special shout out to you. My name is Brad Livingston. I'm the lead pastor here uh, at TC, and we are jumping straight into our Paul series. But right before we do that, I want to give a special shout out to all you guys at watch parties right now. All of you that have jumped in. I know you're watching from different homes, and we are pumped. All you that are watching uh, in our Facebook groups on watch parties right now. Man, I want to give a special shout out to you as well. Welcome, uh, and we can't wait to see what God is going to do uh, in your life. And we've been in this Paul series. We've been talking about the life of David, and today we're going to continue that journey. And so I want to invite you to get out your Bibles, get out your notebooks, uh, and let's get ready for what God wants to speak to us about uh, today. And so as we jump straight back in to the story of David, we're going to pick up. And, and if you remember after last week, David has killed Goliath at this point, right? And so he's been called, he's been anointed as a future king, he kills Goliath. Um, and so he is on his track for the future. And so uh, we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 16, actually, which is before David kills Goliath, because there's a, a note that I want you to see. There's something I want you to see that happens. In 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says this, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So the, the Spirit of the Lord, the anointing from God, left Saul. Why? Because it had now been put on David. Now, David wasn't king yet. Saul was still king, but the anointing and the Spirit of God left him. Um, and so after David kills Goliath, we jump over to 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 through 9. So I'm going to give you a second to turn there. 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9. And it says that when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, talking about Goliath, the women came out from all the towns in Israel to make King Saul, uh, to meet King Saul, and singing and dancing with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. So Saul was very angry, and this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the whole kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And I want to pause right there because in this particular sermon, we're actually going to see ourselves more in Saul than we see ourselves in David. And that'll make sense as we go through it. But the one thing that stands out to us right here is, is Saul has been given the kingdom. So God anointed Saul to be king over Israel for that time. And then he anoints David. And, and one thing that happens is as David begin, gets anointed and, and becomes uh, set the plan in motion for the future king, uh, Saul starts to get frustrated. And here's the deal. Saul starts to take ownership over something he was only supposed to steward. And in our lives, we get very frustrated when we try to take ownership over the things that God has only called us to steward. And what I said in your notes, and you can write this down, you've been called to steward what you've been given, not to keep what you've been trusted with. You see, everything you have right now comes from the Lord. Every good and precious thing comes from God. And so since it comes from the Lord, he's let you borrow it. And even your finances, your house, your car, everything you have right now, it's a gift from God that he's trusting you not to keep, not to own, but to steward well, to take care of, 
knowing that he's trusted you with this. And the day that he may ask for it, the day may he may come alongside you and say, I want you to do this with that bank account or that savings account. Now, not the church, not a pastor. That's not what I'm talking about. But God speaking to your heart and say, I want you to do, I know you've been saving for this, but I want you to do this. When he comes to us and asks that of us, because we've given him our whole lives, we should do that too. And so we've been called to steward what we've been given, but we haven't been called to keep what he's trusted us with. And Saul started forgetting that he was called to steward what he had been given, not keep it for himself, right? And so we go to Matthew 6, 19 through 21. And as we expound on this idea of what God is asking us to give back, I just want to give you this little note because we're reminded of it. And it says it like this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In other words, don't build up treasures for yourself here where it can be taken from you. He says, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. So wherever you put your treasure, wherever the things are the most valued, that's where your heart is. And I, I know for me, this has been a hard thing to grab a hold of because, man, as I started to pursue the Lord and give him my whole life, there were moments on that journey, even recently, where God said, I want you to give this to me. I want you to give this to the kingdom. I want you to surrender. I know you set that money aside for this, but I want you to give it to this over here. And as he did that, what I realized is my heart had become too attached to the things of this world. You see, I had ambitions, I had goals, I had things that I was trying to accomplish on earth. And God said, I want you to take your ambitions and I want you to sacrifice them so that you can accomplish in the kingdom what I'm aiming to accomplish. And I'm going to do it through you. But here's the beauty. When we're faithful with what God has entrusted us with, he knows he can trust us with more. You see, God asks us to lay things down because he's going to give us something bigger and better. And I'm not necessarily saying a bigger bank account. I'm not necessarily saying a yacht or a Ferrari. All right? What I'm saying is he'll give us more of what we could ever need, more of what we have to have in our lives. And sometimes some of us need to trade our finances for peace. Some of us need to trade our bank accounts for joy. Some of us will be rich and miserable. And God says, I want to give you something better than you could ever imagine. And so Saul is saying, I want to keep what I've been entrusted with. And God's saying, no, no, no. I want you to give that up. At every moment, with every resource, you should be praying about how God would have you to use it, not about how you can keep it. And one of the things when it comes to finances is I know this hits home for a few people. Is that what we say is, I'm the provider, not God. When we say, uh, I'm not giving this, when we say, I don't want to tithe or I don't want to give or I don't want to be a part of what God is asking me to do and I just want to keep it all to myself, you know what we're telling God? God, I'm the provider, not you. I've earned this. You didn't give this to me. I earned this. And the reality is the Bible says every good and precious thing comes from the Lord. Everything you have is because God graced you to have it. And so when he asked for it back, whatever that may be, we should be willing to turn that over. And just like with Saul, we can hold on to things. And so let's go back to Saul. In 1 Samuel 18, 10 through 11, it says, The next day, while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it. And saying to himself, I'll pin David against the wall. But David eluded him twice. And then in 1 Samuel 19, 9, we see the same thing happening again where Saul tries to kill David. And we're in this situation 
where many of us are far more likely to end up like Saul than we are David. You see, in this particular case, we can grow frustrated. We can grow too attached. We can grow uh, connected to too many things of this world. And we can grow frustrated with the people around us. But Jesus has made us a promise in Hebrews. You see, the, the Spirit left Saul in the Old Testament. It departed from him, the Bible says. But there's a promise that's been given to us as believers that that actually will never happen. In Hebrews 13, 5, he says, For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the torment that's coming against uh, Saul here is not something we have to worry about. But you want to know what we do have to worry about? We don't have to worry about letting the Spirit leave us. But we do have to worry about the pandemonium around us becoming so loud that we can't enjoy the presence of God where we're at. We could become so misconstrued, distracted, and consumed by the things that are happening around us. The things that are happening on social media. The chaos on Facebook and Instagram. The news that's constantly giving us poison. We could become so distracted by the pandemonium of life that we forget that there's peace and clarity in the presence of God. And for so many of us, that's where we find ourselves. <clears throat> Not that God has left us, but we become so consumed by the things of this world that we forget where God is at. We forget about his presence. So we're at the risk of that. And I want you to understand this. The louder that you allow the pandemonium to become, the harder it is to be in his presence. The louder that you allow the pandemonium to become, the harder it is to just sit in the presence of God. Some of you, your anxiety and your anxiousness is being triggered by the things of this world and it's getting so bad, it's not letting you enjoy your relationship with the Lord. You're so stressed out, you're so consumed. And God is saying, I want you to block all of that out and come to me because this is where you'll get peace and joy and clarity. John 15, four through eight says this. It says, remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So you can't produce, talking about bearing fruit. You can't produce, right? You can't be productive. You can't have a blessed marriage. You can't be good in your business. You can't be a good friend. You can't be helpful for those around you. You can't have a positive and encouraging life for yourself. You can't have positivity, peace, or joy. It's hard to have the fruits of the Spirit, hear me, Jesus says in John 15, unless you abide in me. Unless you spend time in my presence, you can't bear those good fruits. And for some of you, you're trying to bear good fruit without being connected to the vine that produces. And some of us have to come back to what we used to have before COVID-19, before the pandemic, before all the racial unrest in our country, tricked, I would say, picked up even more because it's always been there underneath the current. Before all of those things, we have to come back to where we were with the Lord that was giving us peace and joy and not allow the pandemonium to rob it from us. Jesus continues, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. What kind of fruit? Helpful, pleasant, peaceful, joyful fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, he says. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Why? Showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, I want you to get that last part. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Now, I want you to grab a hold of this for a second. All the fruit you can produce in your life isn't so you're awesome. All the fruit that you can produce in your life isn't because you're just straight up stud, you're legendary, you're amazing, you're going to be great. No, no, no. Hear me for a second. It is to God's glory that your life bear much fruit. You know what that means? God wants you to bear much fruit. He wants your marriage to be blessed. He wants your finances to be blessed. He wants you to walk in blessing. He wants you to walk in identity. He wants you to walk in peace, joy, affirmation. He wants you to be confident in who you are in him. Why? Because in that you get to bear the fruit and he gets the glory from the fruit that you bear. But grab a hold of this, the second you start to take that glory for yourself, it's no longer his and he'll no longer let it produce. And so we have to live a life that is constantly giving back to God. So like Saul, we wither without presence, right? We have a tendency to start to give into the torment type of responses where we see Saul trying to kill David in this story. Many of us are distanced from God and you're allowing your torment to think differently of those that you've been called to love. In the world around us, we've allowed the torment of the spirit, we've allowed the torment of the things of this world to cause us to love and serve the people of God differently because of the pandemonium in the world around us. So Saul pursues David for a few chapters. So once we start kicking off chapters 19, 20, 21, we start to see that Saul is actually in a pursuit. He is sending warriors after David to kill him. And in 1 Samuel 21, David goes to Nob, to Hamalek, the priest, where he rests and eats, and he actually gets Goliath's sword. That's a whole portion of the story that we don't have time to read today. But then Saul finds out that, finds out that he was there. Right? And in 1 Samuel 22, verse 13 through 16, we pick up. And Saul said to Ahimelech, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, talking about David, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and you have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as, the, as at this day. Now, grab a hold of this. Saul hasn't told anybody other than his close people that he is now uh, at war with David, if you will, that David is now an enemy. So as far as people know, David is still one of the ones that Saul loves and is close to. As a matter of fact, if we look back in the chapters, we see that David married one of Saul's daughters. So then the priest answered the king and said, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? So he's answering him saying, who out of all these servants is as faithful as David is to you? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and ordered in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? In other words, prayed for him and come to before God for him? He says, no. In other words, David is someone that you've honored. He's been in your house. He's married to your daughter. How am I supposed to know that you're not right with him? Let not the king impute anything to his servant, talking about David, or to all the house of my father, talking about me and my family. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die you and all of your father's house. So Saul starts to take out his vengeance on him. And this is where we see something kind of popping off that uh, we see it a little bit in our culture and, we, and we've seen it start to pop up real bad lately again. And it's a stuff called cancel culture. 
where everything is coming in and it's like if anyone has ever done or said anything ever that might disrupt the social norm of what people find acceptable, they should just be wiped off the face of the planet and never be allowed to breathe again. That's genuinely what people on social media and Twitter and all those other outlets are starting to act like. But we need to be careful. And I want you to hear this for all of you that are believers right now. We need to be careful which cultural bandwagons we jump on. We need to be careful how quickly we just become part of movements that the world has created. Just because society, talking about a sin-filled world's society, talking about the one that still serves the enemy because they're blinded to the gospel society, talking about the ones who don't step foot in the church and aren't loving their brothers and sisters and aren't following Jesus with their life, that society, just because that society has decided that they want to turn their backs on everything and everybody doesn't mean we should. We as Christians need to see differently. Saul's emotions towards the priest are swaying without regard to discernment or what the Lord might think. Saul is being swayed with madness and is killing the innocent in the process. And for some of us, our emotions look the very same way. We may not be killing people, but we may be killing the love that we're supposed to have for people because we're jumping on cultural bandwagons. Some people need to be canceled. Don't get me wrong. There are people that need to be shut down. I believe there are voices that need to be eliminated, particularly in how Christians receive from them. There, are, there is evil out there that I am glad society is starting to silence their words. So there is certainly room for that. But what happens when the train is moving so fast that it starts to kill the righteous and we've already got on board? You see, we have to pray more about what God is telling us more than we listen to what the world is telling us. You see, we can't just jump on board with cancel culture. We can't just be swayed by the things of this world because we may end up like Saul, killing one of our own. And we got to be very careful not to do that. Any movement designed by the world should really call into question the level of participation by those in the church. Any movement designed by the world should really call into question the level of participation by those in the church. If the world created it, it has very little bearing on righteousness in the church. And we need to be careful. I'm not saying we shouldn't be a part of anything. I'm saying it should call into question the level of participation. We should use discernment. Let me ask you something. When's the last time you prayed before you posted? When's the last time you went to God before you went to your friends to agree with you? When's the last time you used discernment before you put out your opinion? You see, we have to become more aware and not get caught up in the speed of the bandwagon of freight train because we may hurt people in the process. I'm not saying we should have no participation. Some need us. Some movements need Christian voices. And I support the ones that have a biblical gospel-centered foundation to keep moving forward. But the level of agreement, support, etc., lest we start to cancel our eternal brothers and sisters over temple issues without using discernment. So are we being so tormented by evil that we're attacking those that are righteous in Christ? John 13, 35 says this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. By this, everyone will know. So by your love for one another, the world will know you're my disciples. So how well do we love one another? That's the question I have for you today. In the midst of pandemonium, how well do we love one another? 
Well, to answer that, I think we need to look at what love even looks like. And we go to uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, it says this. Love is patient. When's the last time we were patient with someone that thought differently than us? Love is kind. When is the last time we were kind to someone even if they weren't kind to us? It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. When's the last time that we gave honor to someone even though they didn't honor us? When's the last time we gave honor to someone even if they disagreed with us? It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Boy, everybody on social media can take a page out of that one. Not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, that one's hard for me. I'm not going to lie to you. Because I'm the guy that's like, I remember what you did to me a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago when I was seven. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I can be that guy, right? But hear me. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Now, I want you to grab hold of this one simple thing when we're talking about truth. Not your truth. The truth. I'm going to look in the other camera real quick. Not your truth. Everybody at a watch party, look at me. Not your truth, the truth. Your truth doesn't matter. How you feel is irrelevant when the truth has said differently. Well, they just really upset me and now I just want, no, no, no. But what does love look like? Yeah, but I'm just so angry at them. Cool. What does love look like? Because your truth is not nearly as important as the truth. And as believers, the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples by our ability to be connected to the truth. By our ability not to boast, but to be kind and patient. And it continues to say it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. So as Christians, that's what it looks like to represent Jesus to the world. And particularly in how we interact with each other. Now, I can't tell you that everything's always going to be smooth. Listen, if you put two of me in a room long enough, I'm going to disagree with them, right? Why? Different people have different opinions based on the different lenses that they see the world through. But it's okay to have different opinions. It's okay to believe differently. But it's not okay to take those beliefs and then love people differently. We've been called to silence the pandemonium, hit pause on the pandemonium around us so that we can represent Jesus to each other. So we come in and 1 Samuel 24 is where we kind of pick up and, and I'm going to give you a very brief overview. David spares Saul's life. And so uh, Saul is coming after David. He's got his warriors with him. He goes into a cave actually uh, to use the restroom. And uh, as he's doing that, David has a chance and he can kill Saul. David has an opportunity to kill Saul, to end it. Man, like this could be done with. And quite frankly, if it were us, we would have used the opportunity. He's been coming after me. He's been trying to kill me. He's been saying mean things about me on social media. He's been posting about me. He's been lying about me. I haven't liked his tweets lately. I haven't liked what he put on Instagram. He posted a picture about something that I don't agree with because I was raised in this whatever. No, no, no. Listen, David had a reason to kill Saul because Saul was trying to kill David. But when he had the chance, David spared his life because he knew I got to stand before God one day and the whole world may disagree with what I did, but I'm going to stand before God righteous. And in 1 Samuel 24, 11, it says this, and, and David is talking to Saul. He says, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And Saul responds to him like this in verse 19. 
He says, for if a man finds his enemy, and at this point Saul is weeping because David has shown him this kind of kindness. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you good for what you have done to me this day. And Saul actually repents because David's kindness showed Saul who he was. Listen, you may never prove to people your thought process or your belief system, but you can show them through acting like Jesus what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That you don't have to, I don't have to prove anything to anyone around me. The pandemonium, listen, the world wants you to believe that until everyone thinks like you, you haven't accomplished your mission. I'm here to tell you today that until all of us think like Jesus, none of us have accomplished our mission. Your opinion isn't the right one, it's just another one. The word is the truth, and this is what we line up with. People ask me all the time, do you have an opinion about this? Do you have an opinion about that? I'm like, of course I have an opinion about those things, but none of them matter, because my opinion has to conform to this, just like yours does, because that's what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. So here we are, just like Saul. Saul has been given this opportunity to repent, and, and so we're a lot like him. We have vendettas. We're judgmental. We have bitterness. We have anger. We have insecurities, right? Caught up in social media emotions and frustrations, trying to destroy everything and everyone that thinks differently than us. But Jesus, once again, is the better David. Jesus is the better David, the very one that truly has a right to destroy us. You see, here we are, and Jesus has the right to destroy us. Why? We are sin-filled people that have in our heart ought against him because we love our sin more than we love him sometimes. Because we truly have offended him. We truly have done him wrong. We were his enemy and he gave us safe passage. Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, we were brought back to him through the death of his son. While we were enemies, God paid for us through the death of his own son. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what Jesus did for me. You see, Jesus found us in our caves of despair and sin and didn't allow our destruction, but he saved us in grace. As we were walking into caves ourselves and Jesus had an opportunity to let us burn in eternity, you know what he did? The same thing David did to Saul. He said, I'm gonna extend grace to you where you haven't been graceful to me. I'm gonna give to you the patience that you have not afforded to me. You sinned against me, but I'm gonna give grace to you. Jesus found us in those caves, but how much more are we to be gracious to those who haven't offended us nearly as bad as we've offended Jesus? Here's what I wrote down. I want you to put this in your notes. Let's give grace as freely as we've received it but they didn't apologize to me, Brad. That's cool. Let's give grace as freely as we've received it. Yeah, but you don't know what they did to me. It can't be worse than what you and I have done to Jesus. Yeah, but they really hurt. Maybe so, but let's give grace as freely as we've received it. They haven't earned grace, neither have you, but Jesus gave it to you. They haven't apologized. It's all right, Jesus is bringing it to you. You bring it to them. You wanna know why? Because when you give them grace, when you forgive, when you move on, you're freeing yourself from the pandemonium. 
You hit pause on the chaos. You hit pause on the pandemonium when you start to show grace, even if they haven't earned it yet. So, not because they deserve grace, but because we didn't either. So we pause the pandemonium, the craziness, the chaos. Love your brothers and sisters better than Saul did, but become, try, give all of your effort and rest in grace and trying to treat people more like David did. That even if you have an opportunity to sin against them, it doesn't mean you should. Why? Because you will show the world you are my disciples by your love for one another. And folks, all of you at watch parties, all of you watching us online, we are the church. Let's pray today. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that you've been gracious to us. And God, I pray that you help us be gracious to others. Father, where they may not have earned our favor, our grace, our forgiveness, God, you show us that we didn't earn it either, but you gave it to us. So let us be more like Jesus and love our brothers and sisters well. God, let us show forgiveness. Let us be slow to anger and judgment and wrath on our own account, but let us love people, be kind and patient to them. As you are making all of us more and more into your image, we thank you today and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, listen, guys, if you are watching us today, and quite frankly, you are in a position where you need Jesus in your life. You need that grace that we just talked about. You need the forgiveness. Granted, you haven't earned it, and quite frankly, if you look at any of us, those of you that are sitting next to people at watch parties and watching us online, if you look around, none of us have earned it, because the Bible says we can't. But you're ready for a fresh start, a new beginning, and for your sins to be wiped away so that you can give your life to Jesus and follow him. If you're ready for that, I'm here to tell you today that Jesus has made it possible for you and it cost you nothing, but it cost him everything. But what you'll find out is just because it cost you nothing doesn't mean that you should give him nothing. The Bible says that we surrender our life, we die to ourselves, we, we give away our life, we give it back to him and we follow him with everything that we have. Our life is now Jesus. And today, I want to invite you into that. If you want that clean slate, that new beginning, that fresh start in Jesus Christ, the Bible says we repent of our sins, which means to turn away, and then we put our faith in Jesus. And today, if you want to put your faith in Him, today, if you want to have that clean slate, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. And this prayer doesn't make you saved. This prayer is putting words to the actions of your heart that you're saying, I'm putting my faith in you, Jesus. And but this, let's pray this prayer together. And let's commit these words from our heart to tell Jesus, you can have my life. So let's pray. Repeat after me. Say, dear Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me my sins. Forgive me my wrongs. I believe in you. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. And I believe you defeated my sin. You bought my sin on the cross. So I want to give you my life. Give me a fresh start. Give me a new beginning. I give you everything, and now I follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.